Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Solar and battery storage developers need alternative financing solutions for the land that hosts their projects, whether it's a loan against the lease value, whether it's buying an easement, or whether it's purchasing the fee simple. And that's what we're here to do. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, welcome back, Solar Warriors. I am so grateful that you are taking time out of your busy day. In fact, you are investing right now, not just in your development, but in our industry. You're giving us, in fact, the only non-renewable resource you possess. That is your time. I promise we're going to take good care of it. Here to help shepherd and steward that promise is my friend, Laura Pagliarulo. She is a entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, someone who has learned the trade, not just the tricks of the trade, of how the power markets work. She's a founding member of and CEO of Solarite. Prior to that, she was one of the key leadership team members at Clean Choice Energy. Sure, many of you will recognize that name where she built and grew their community solar business. And in fact, she led the community solar divisions for Sun Edison and did a ton of additional sort of industry and market firsts as far back as her time at Washington Gas and uh, building energy efficiency businesses. Heck, she even launched the Environmental Club in her high school. Laura has a long history of protecting and coming up with products to uh, enhance our environment. And if you like these kinds of conversations, well, you have landed in the right place, especially if this is your first time. We got more than 645 such conversations in our back catalog. Climate champions, solar warriors, just like Laura, who are on the front lines of our clean energy transition. So I hope that you will subscribe to the show so you won't miss out on a single opportunity to grow and learn along with us. But for now, I want you to tune up your skills with another powerful conversation here on Suncast. You know, if you are a longtime listener, there are, uh, I've said a few times that today's guest has taken a long time to get on the show. And that is why I know it's going to be valuable for you because friends, when it when it is hard to get someone as a guest, it genuinely usually means that they are doing important things and it just didn't uh, didn't work out for various reasons. Uh, but Laura and I finally, finally made it happen. And before we get started, I, want to do, I do want to thank our friend, uh, mutual industry uh, veteran himself, Matt Hankey, who helped connect Laura and I way back on your birthday in 2021, when we did our first pre-interview, Laura, I'm stoked that we finally get the chance to dig in and do this interview. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Nico. I'm really happy to be here. And another uh, shout out to Matt for connecting us. Yeah, he's been uh, he's been good to the show, um, as have uh, the IPS folks, uh, Eric. And gosh, it's just fun to see how this industry grows and um, the, the amoeba of how our industry is um, sort of coming together. And no surprise, as we dig into your backstory that you have worked for Notable companies like WGL and Sun Edison. So we'll dig into that 
But before we jump deep into your whole backstory and everything that um, sort of brings us to why you are building uh, the business that you're building, I often like to start with a quote. Uh, I'll read the one that I have picked out for today, and I'd love for you to contribute to one or comment on this one or both. Um, And today's quote is, the vision must be followed by the venture. It is not enough to stare up the steps. We must step up the stairs. Vince Havner brings that little uh, drop of wisdom to us. And uh, so many just stand there <laughs> looking and thinking about how long and winding the staircase is. And I can promise you, my friends, with, after eight years uh, on this venture and two and a half years on previous venture and three other on a previous, as a serial entrepreneur, like you got to start walking up them stairs and, uh, and figure out where, uh, you know, where the steps are broken. <laughs> Or where where it was leading to the wrong to the wrong doorway? Uh, maybe it's Hogwarts style. Laura, does that resonate for you? <laughs> it does. Um, I feel like I my, my background is I've I've had a lot of entrepreneurial ventures within larger companies, but this is truly my first entrepreneurial venture where the opportunity was presented, and it was you know I mean plenty of risks, and we'll talk about that today. But um, so not just about like taking the risk and you know, sort of one step in front of the other and, you know, starting to actualize um, your vision. But there's a Winston Churchill quote that was, you're never going to reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. Now, listen, no, I love, I love dogs and I don't advocate throwing stones at dogs, but I will say this, when you do decide to go and take that next step and sort of realize your, your vision, it's so important to not get distracted. And uh, that was like one of the key lessons that we learned early on. So lots of opportunities to throw stones or even just, you know, focus on the next shiny thing, but critical to just focus on the one thing that matters. So that's amazing. I love that. And I haven't heard that of the many wonderful quotes of uh, Winston Churchill. My my favorite uh, Churchill quote, and I think it is rightly uh, attributed to him. Um, is I would have written you a longer, a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Oh, it's so true. Because I feel like sometimes that is what Suncast is. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Distilling it down to the most important message. Yeah, well, and sometimes those most important messages are the the three-hour unpacking of someone's journey. Well, look, at the the outset here, I think that it's important to cover the macro, the problem. What is it that you would describe as the problem that um, was enunciated to you uh, by Gotham or that you and he had uh, uh, visualized or, or recognized in, in the outset that, you, you know, that you've created to solve? When we launched Solary, there was no one that could work with developers to solve their real estate uh, problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is anytime we were developing a project, and a landowner wanted something alternative to like the traditional lease, um, which comes with annuity payments over time, um, we as developers did not have a solution. Buying real estate is not ITC eligible. It's an entirely different, you know, modeling exercise, different cost of capital. Um, So when someone, we were trying to get site control and someone requested something aside from that lease option, we would typically pass. Um, so that's, you know, fundamentally, you know, there's a lot of products that we've, you know, financial products that have come from that, but that's really the problem we're solving. And in that work, we're adding value to developers. We're always accretive to a developer's project. 
Well, you touched a little bit on it there in the problem statement, but I'd love to hear how is Solary, the company that you all created, designed to purposely solve that problem for developers? Yeah, so, you know, I think by way of background, when we originally launched, we thought we were going to be working, we were going to have two channels, working with landowners directly and also working with solar developers. Um, What we quickly learned was that, you know, we were far better suited just because we all come from the industry to work exclusively with developers. Uh, And when I say developers, solar and battery Mm -hmm. storage developers, everyone on the team, um, certainly everyone who has a senior function has um, sometimes multiple decades of experience in the industry. And what that means is we can, you know, we understand the problems developers are facing, which is, which is critical. So like, for example, it's mid-October. I know all of my developer partners are rushing hard to bring projects to NTP yeah. and to close on their MIPA agreements. Um, so we basically designed our business so that it has minimal friction, right? So developers can work with us and it's not a, doesn't require another resource. Um, and essentially what we do is we do three things. We either buy the land under solar projects that are in construction or operational um, and battery storage projects as well. Product number two is we can buy the lease. And what effectively that means is the landowner retains ownership. We buy an easement over the over the project area for like a set duration of time, one lump sum payment, landowner cashes out. And the third product that we offer is we can do like a solar land loan. It looks very similar to like a bank issued mortgage. Um, some some key differences there, but effectively it allows the landowner to take a loan out of the the uh, out of their lease, hundred percent loan to value. You know some other differences there. Got it. It's kind of like a HELOC on the lease pay- payment stream. It is. I mean, basically, it's the present value of future cash flows. We're we're pulling forward the value of the lease. We can model it all the way out to um, you know the extension periods. What's an example of why a landowner would want or prefer that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's so great to dive into case studies because, you know, this is really it's a financial product and you know, in, until you can like get your head around practically how it works, it seems almost I don't know, um too abstract. So, we work with um like a very simple example of how we work with developers would be um they have understood that getting purchase options is the best way for them to um, add value to their projects. So when they're going out and getting site control, and I'll, I'll say this, a lot of DG developers that we work with, they only offer purchase options. Yeah. They don't even offer lease mm-hmm. options. The key there is you need to have a partner that's able to execute on those purchase options when notice to proceed actually occurs. Um, so they amass these purchase options we step in, we pay the landowner whatever agreed upon price, you know, was set two or three years mm-hmm. ago. And then we typically can pay 30%, a little bit more for any purchase option. The developer collects that delta, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So that's one example. Another example would be a developer in, so that's the purchase op- option example. Another example is, you know, we work with a large developer in upstate New York well, actually across all of New York, and they always own the land. And, you know, they so they have lots of land positions with leases um, across the properties. You know, they 
they build the project, sell them to, you know, another counterparty. Um, but they want uh, capital. They want to free up capital. So we do loans against their leases and they're effectively using those dollars as dev capital. Right. Um, and our cost of capital is obviously a heck of a lot less than what you would get for a, a development capital loan. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. You bring up terms and I want to make sure we don't get too far down um, the rabbit hole, but too far also in the conversation before we explain terms that are used that might be confusing. Purchase option we'll get to, but MIPA, and so generally acronyms I try to um, disambiguate. Yeah, what is a MIPA? Membership interest purchase mm-hmm. agreement, essentially what developers use to sell the project at a certain point in okay. time. So if you were a Massachusetts developer selling to a Nextera, mm-hmm. you would use the instrument called a mm-hmm. MIPA to sell the project. Yeah, so you're buying, that is the instrument that allows you to transfer ownership of the membership interest in the LLC that owns the project. Correct. You got it. Before 2019, 20, 21, when you guys started really um, iterating on and creating this as a financial instrument, what solutions existed? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, Hannon Armstrong had a division that had been doing this for a long time. Um, and we had uh, friends who were working over there. However, they were really targeting utility scale projects. Their approach was more reactive. So Perhaps you'd get a portfolio that goes out to bid on and they would respond in an RFP process. Our approach is really different. So we're very proactive. We're a relationship-based business. We're not necessarily, you know, we don't necessarily focus on the transaction. Our goal is to really develop relationships with with solar developers and battery storage developers um, and solve their problems. So we're, we actually don't respond to RFPs as a, as a general rule. That's good. <laughs> so, I, I made that. Um, I made that commitment uh, the last time I was running for a construction company. I I, yeah. I had uh, I have shell shock still uh, from responding yeah. to RFPs. I mean, waste of time, race to the bottom. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Plus, I'm uh, at the time certainly was true. I was a perpetual procrastinator, so I was always the guy like who's racing into the office uh, to to deliver <laughs> that hand uh, must deliver by hand um, bid because I hadn't mailed it in time. Uh, God, what do you feel? Uh, you know, I think that timing is a key element mm. to success in entrepreneurship. What do you feel needed to be true for this to work? If you look back 5, 10, 15 years ago, why would this have failed? I think one of the bigger changes that's happened right now is, you know, the industry is booming. I mean, there's um, the amount of solar, and, and just to be clear, so we can do offer these products on ground mount systems, as well as landfills, rooftops, carports. So the amount of new solar and battery storage that is expected is just tremendous. Typically, you know, 
when the market continues to expand, there's there's much more of a demand for alternative financing options. And, you know, it's interesting because now we're in this high interest rate environment, um, and even more so now than ever, uh, we are actually getting requests for what we do because capital is just more expensive um, everywhere. And our capital is just quite different than the typical sources developers would, would sort of leverage. That makes sense. Is there anything that has changed fundamentally about the market, about the sentiment of like what the number of developers, like I'm going back to kind of, is there anything that changed specifically in the marketplace or needed to be true in order for this to succeed? You know, regulations? No, I don't think so. I mean, the rules for, you know, we are an actual real estate investment trust, you know, that's, you know, it's um, nothing's really changed from that perspective. I would say that, um, well, you know, what has changed, as I mentioned, is that the market continues to expand and you have more developers that um, haven't been around for a long time. And and I think we're going to start to see this actually in the next six months as interest rates had been protected. You know, many of them had counted on interest rates falling and in reality, they're not. So when people had thought they were going to sell their projects at a seven, they're actually not getting bids, um, you know, less than a nine. Um, and I and we're starting to receive a lot of phone calls from developers who are looking for um, they're, they're looking for ways to free up capital, right? When you say a seven versus a nine, can you unpack that? Yeah, it's kind of it's not really directly related to what we do mm-hmm. here. Um, I, I I think the sort of the macro issue is uh, developers had expected to sell their assets at a certain price, and that certain price had baked in a certain debt rate. But in reality, the interest rate slash debt rate has has gone up. And what they expected to make, they're actually underwater. Right. And I guess this is just in developer, like in modeling, what they were solving for as what they believed the investor's hurdle rate would be is now higher. 7% unlevered or yeah, 7% unlevered versus 9% unlevered. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure I remember from my days developing, like nothing's changed because that's been like 2014, 15. I was going to say the best thing about this, uh, Nico, is that, you know, you were at RE plus, you know, this isn't a, this is not a a zero sum game, you know, as the market continues to expand, everybody's winning. So unlike other industries like pharmaceuticals, where I win, if you lose, it's, there's plenty, there's plenty of market to go around. So, okay. I feel like you've enunciated pretty well who you sell to. Is there a category of developer that is better suited to these kinds of instruments um you mentioned in the previous answer the uh, the notion of a more immature developer in terms of their seasoned understanding of um buyer expectations could you unpack and then i don't i don't need a long answer but i'm just curious if there's like a ideal client profile um we actually don't like to work with unseasoned developers okay. <laughs> just to be yeah. clear yeah uh so the types of developers that we work with are those who have experience, you know, the industry is small. We happen, you know, we tend to know a lot of the developers in the space. Either those who need capital for real estate. So, you know, and this is, this is the case unless you are a very well-funded, you know, IPP. The capital that's used for real estate is very different than the capital that's used to develop projects. Um, so as I mentioned, it's not ITC eligible. So A, your capital constrained, maybe small to medium size, but you know what you're doing. 
right? You understand how solar works and battery storage. And the second um, class of uh, developers that we target are really those that actually can develop utility scale projects, not just DG developers, but uh, who have recognized early on that their capital is much better suited to not buy millions of dollars in real estate. So unless you really have a separate land co strategy in place already, it's it's very hard to set up, first of all. But um, unless you have that in place, you know, you really are uh, are, are, are going to work with either a Hannon or a Solarate or someone like that. I'd love to hear some success points. Um, you kind of blew my mind with how you started the business. And I don't want to go into the founding moment yet, but um, shortly after you were brought on, or around the time you were brought on, part of what you had to do was raise essentially a first fund so you could go out and offer this sort of, uh, of financing instrument. How much did you raise in your first round? Yeah, it was kind of blew my mind too to have that discussion with you a couple of days ago. So when we got together, so it was really Gotham and I in the beginning and two other founders, Matt being one of them actually. Um, but really when we, Gotham and I were, were speaking, we had this idea on a piece of paper and um, we had to start raising equity. So we raised $50 million in equity primarily from ultra high net worth individuals, couple institutional investors, and that was done all during the pandemic. So we launched Solary a little over three years ago. Um, so really in June or July in 2020, it's interesting to think about, you know, pandemics don't, they don't announce themselves. Uh, you know, it's interesting because when you're in it, you know, you, you hear about a pandemic, but they don't announce themselves and there's really not like an intermediate step. So, it's only in hindsight we look back and we think, wow, we raised all that equity without having one in-person meeting, yeah. all by Zoom. All of our investors took a huge leap of faith in terms of what we were doing. I mean, it makes sense. Um, and then that was really, pro- you know, we, we proved out the concept. We filled that first fund. So $50 million in equity, and then we um, closed um, on $100 million in debt from uh, TIA, Kraft, Naveen, via securitization. So. Yeah, so um, it was $100 million in debt, $50 million in equity, $150 million fund for the first round. All virtual. Correct. And in how, what, what span of time? We closed on our securitization in December of 2020, end of December in 2020. Mm-hmm. So roughly six months. Yep. And we had very few deals under our belt at that mm-hmm. point in time. Did you have to take that out to Wall um, Street? Because as a REIT, I presume you did. We... Did not. We're not a public okay. read, so we are a private right. read. Um, so all this is done privately, private uh, securitization, private rating. Mm-hmm. We had to use one of the top four on Wall Street, okay. um, which was pretty and got awesome. An a so rating. We, got an, we did. We got an A rating. It was Congratulations. Pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, tons of work. Again. What do you What do you I attribute that the, to? Why Why the A rating for a brand new startup with you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that. So what we're, you know. If you think about what we're doing, paying the leases is the top of the waterfall only behind taxes. So this would probably be appealing to like project finance people. So essentially, even when PG&E and Sun Edison went bankrupt, they always made their lease payments. Because if you don't pay your landowners for the leases, you lose rights to the asset. Um and so it's a, I don't want to say bulletproof business model, but pr- pretty solid. 
And it's also fascinating to think back at that time three years ago when we were very much a startup. And now we have, you know, this fantastic partner with Carval, AB Carval, um, who's made a large equity investment in us. So we're no longer in startup mode. Um, it's uh, we're, we're transitioning pretty quickly here uh, and poised for scale. And one other thing that I think about, Nico, is when you're like, when you're an asset owner and you have hundreds of landowners that you have to interact with because you even aside from just you know getting the project built you're always going to have an ongoing request for easements or estoppels SNDAs um they like working with us far better than tracking down all of these individual landowners um because really you're reaching out to myself or to Laura Klein um for those requests so you mentioned casually AD Carval in August you closed in 250 million facility. What, uh, this I presume represents fund two. Yeah. The new asset co. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big jump. 150 is a great start. 250, uh, suggests that you're doing something right. What do you think the AB Carval team sees in Solary that convinced them this is the right vehicle to, to invest in? Well, I can't speak to sort of their motivations. I can speak to my impression of the team, mm-hmm. which has been fantastic. So they clearly have a demonstrated desire to invest yeah. in renewable energy companies. So um, whether it's battery storage or solar developers. And my sense is, I don't believe they've made an investment, and I could be totally wrong, in a similar company that does the real estate component of this. But I would imagine, um, just like so many in this market, as you're starting to speak to more players in the market, you're starting to hear the expression of a need for some sort of financing under under the uh, land under the project, so that's that's my sense. Um, I also totally give credit to the team, my team, who has done so much in such a short period of time. I mean, it's really that's the most humbling um, piece for me is to look around and see everyone who's around me and and what they've accomplished, yeah. which has really been significant. So we've got great people. Yeah. I, I missed it. Um, was the two fifty an equity or debt or both? Yeah. So the way that it works is it's $100 million um, originally up to $250 million. And we are, of course, are going to lever that with mm-hmm. debt. So that's the the next phase here. That's amazing. So that's an equity commitment. That's a tremendous uh, stamp of approval. Uh, yeah, I, it is. It's it's tremendous validation. Yeah, it, is, it really it is. is. Um, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's yeah. a 5x increase in just the uh, belief in the company and your capacity. Um, I would assume it comes with probably a 10x growth in pipeline. We have a lot of work to do, Nico. Well, you're no stranger to hard work. Um, let's talk yeah. a bit about how that might have come about. Where did you grow up? Where were you raised? I grew up in the Berkshires, Western Massachusetts, so uh, which is a pretty beautiful part of the state, I will say. I don't know if you've... Have you ever been I there? I have. I have. Yeah. Um, you know what I loved about the answer? You could see it in my eyes when you first said you grew up in the Berkshires uh, on our, in our one of our previous conversations. You go, Nico, I grew up in a rural part of the country, not in a fancy way. <laughs> so yeah. for those, everyone here, everyone hears the Berkshires mm-hmm. and they think, Oh, she was this entitled, uh, but no, we, we had a great childhood, but, um, it was, you know, a, it wasn't the second home in the Berkshires. So yeah. In fact, it was a family home, a generationally family home. Your mom is, a, is descended from a Berkshire farming family. Can you talk about the, that cultural, uh, history and that heritage for, for your family? Yeah. So my mother's family had been in um, that area for generations. Um, 
her maiden name was Adams, just to give you a sense. Adams from Massachusetts. Yeah, of course. So, uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a name that you probably heard yeah. of. Um, and um, so a lot of, um, you know, just a long farming family mm-hmm. in that part of the country. My father, um, his family's from Italy, so he's first generation. So on both sides, it was a really strong work ethic um, modeled to me from both of my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, Did your father so, still have uh, an accent because there was a because his family was um, immigrant? N- no, no, my grandparents, my my grandfather um, didn't speak um, English very well. My Nona learned English better, mm. very thick accent, um, and I spent a tremendous amount of time with them growing up. So, yeah. um, tell me, tell yeah. me about that time with your grandparents and your family. What was the conversation like around the dinner table? Um, with my grandparents, well, yeah. I mean, we taught, we, we, a lot of our life was centered around food. You know? <laughs> of so course. It was around family and food. I mean, that was like, that was the primary um, focus uh, when we were kids. But uh, I mean, my grandmother, um, I call her my Nona. She was, I remember in fifth grade, we had to pick a person in history that we admired and write about them. And I picked her um, because, you know, just her story coming over here. Uh, when she was 16, right after World War II, and having lost so much um, in the war, uh, and just starting new is—I mean, it's—it's it's the immigrant story. But when it's closer to home, you you feel it more. So, there's a lot of genetic and muscle memory embodied in um, immigrant families that is both sort of work ethic, hardworking, humble. Um, a lot of that also uh, is land of opportunity and folks come to America and become entrepreneurs. Was that, you know, as a farm family, that is implicitly, um, for the most part, entrepreneurship. Uh, do you feel like you uh, recognized early in life a, 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 a sense of independence and entrepreneurship? Yeah, definitely. So um, my dad's parents, my grandfather, um, was a stonemason. Mm-hmm. So that's all self, you yeah. know, all self-started. And then growing up, my father was a teacher, a special ed teacher, um, but he, we always had real estate, um, meaning like he'd buy these dumpy houses in the Berkshires when they still existed and uh, and renovate mm-hmm. them and then rent them out. So um, there was always, always a sense of entrepreneurship and like little businesses I'd have as a kid. You know, I started my own little newspaper, a dog walking business, a cat, you know, it's like all the things that I assume so many kids do, but that was my, uh, that was my, that was my jam. You know, it's funny. So. I mean, I've got three kids. None of them started a business yet, which still surprises me. Yeah, me too. What is, got, what is up with that? Um, but I think <laughs> that we, we just assume that this is a good thing kids do. Um, yeah. I, I look back scornfully on my like nine year old self. Um, like I have very judgmental <laughs> conversations in my head of like that lazy kid that never started any, any kind of business and like how, uh, I regret that he didn't because I started so late. Like I was 26 when I started my first business, um, <laughs> which is, which is hilarious. That's not very late. I mean, I didn't start my own real business until recently. I mean, yeah. you know, my dog walking business, uh, you know, really did, didn't work out. Nico. I've given my kids so many ideas. Like it's, you, we, it's only in hindsight as an adult that you can be like, God, there's so adults are so willing to just give kids money. Right. Totally. I have a, totally. I have a cousin whose son, uh, they were uh, glass blowers and they would go around to all these fairs, like trade fairs mm-hmm. and um, mostly like Renaissance fairs and stuff, you know, craft fairs, such. And at five years old, 
he uh, went down to the river, picked up river rocks, and he walked back around to all the vendors. And he said, would you like to buy this river rock? It's a dollar. And he made $25. And because he wanted- he, <laughs> Yeah, because he's, he's really cute right. and he's five. And, and, yeah. then, and yeah. then he goes to his dad and he's like, where'd you get that money? He's like, oh, I just sold 25 rocks. He's like, no way. Well, don't you have some friends? And um, uh, my cousin's now got many successful businesses, but this kid goes around to the next fair and he recruits all the vendors' kids and they all go get rocks for him. Oh yeah. How long ago was this? this? I mean, this kid's kid's going places. This is like maybe 15 years ago. He now runs his own business. Yeah, he makes his own. uh, Of course, yeah. He makes um, these ridiculously um, impressive LED lights. Um, Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Well, you growing up in the Berkshires were exposed both to culture as well as hard work. Um, did you have a sense early in life of what you thought you might become? Like what, what did that aspirational 12-year-old Laura look for? Yeah, I would say that um, from the entire reason why, and, and listen, it wasn't well thought out at all. So I think this is really important. Certainly when I'm talking to my kids, it's like I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I definitely knew, um, you know, most of my time growing up was spent in the woods, all, you know, hiking, camping. We all were just outside all the time because truly there's nothing else to do in the Berkshires during much of the year except for that. Um, So I just wanted to get involved in the environmental space. Um, And then it was only, you know, in college where I really started to learn more about the issues with climate. I mean, really, that's that's really what it boiled down to. Um, so, and of course, you went to um, Vermont, where yeah, uh, always on yeah, the vanguard. Exactly. In, totally, in, with Absolutely. regards to climate, which is which is crazy to me because I never, you know, you knew they were forward thinking and the professors were outstanding. Yeah. Um, but it, it's still surprising to me that the that the language mm-hmm. and what the dialogue was back in 1998 is like now coming to surface in mainstream America, America like right now. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a, been a couple of years since I've been an undergrad, Nico. So you and me both. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that really, you know, that really, that's really where my interest and in energy in the environment peaked. So I started, you know, um, my, my uh, thesis work as an undergrad was that was on biomass. There's a big biomass plant in Burlington. So anyways, it's cool. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools, and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications, as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself. See how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey, friends. I have a proposition for you. Instead of freezing your tail off like I am here in North Carolina, why don't you jump on a plane, come to San Diego, January 17th to 19th, and hang out with us at InterSolar. 
Intersolar North America and Energy Storage North America. As you're probably aware, one of the premier U.S.-based trade show and conferences focused on solar energy storage and EV charging infrastructure. Suncast listeners can get free access to the expo hall by using the code SUNCAST at intersolar.us. That code will also get you 20% off your conference pass to learn, connect, and conduct business with the most innovative companies in the solar and energy storage business. Go to intersolar.us, use the code SUNCAST. And hey, don't forget to stick around all the way through Friday because yours truly may be on stage at the Solar Games. Come check it out. See you in San Diego. From undergrad, how did you find your way into energy? Was it something that you just always knew you would do? Yeah, it was actually a choice because when I was an undergrad, um, and this is still factually correct, that, you know, emissions are either coming from, you know, electricity, how we heat buildings, um, you know, residential homes or transportation. I kind of, you know, like so much in life, you kind of just has to have to go with doors as they open. Um, so first got involved in uh, energy efficiency stuff then wind power and then uh, solar. What was the energy efficiency stuff? Because I remember you sold, I, I still don't understand what it was. You said it was the first of and uh, yeah. it seemed like it was a big yeah. deal. Yeah, no, it still is. I mean, they're an amazing group of people. Um, in Burlington at the time, there was a, a group, a nonprofit called Vermont Energy Investment Corporation. And this is when I was like a baby. I mean, I look back at myself then, it was, you know, 22-year-old uh, Laura um, and or 23-year-old. Uh, but um, they had, they won the contracts, with the, you know, in, in Vermont at the time, um, in order to meet the demand of, of the growing load, um, there was proposals to build massive transmission lines. Velco at the time had proposed to build massive transmission lines. So Vermont had the foresight, you know, being Vermont, to invest in an energy efficiency utility. So essentially, the goal of this utility was not to sell power, it was to reduce the overall uh, electricity needs of the state, um, which they successfully did. So VEIC won a contract for this entity called Efficiency Vermont. Um, and that model, I believe, it was replicated in Washington, D.C. with the D.C. SEU. I think it was replicated in Ohio, maybe. I don't know. I haven't been in that space in a while, but um, it was a, certainly exposure to a group of really smart people who were doing really forward-thinking things. So. What did you learn there that you would say is the like a cornerstone learning in your career? something that still serves you today as a CEO? I remember going to my, um, it was actually my boss's boss at the time and experiencing, feeling frustrated because I had so much energy to give and I wasn't as pleased with the process of advancement. Um, and he looked at me and basically said, you know, Laura, um, when you're not as busy with your work or fulfilled with your work, you're going to develop other hobbies and things in life to fulfill you. And man, that's right. I did so many other things besides work, which seems to be like the predominant, you know, uh, sun and moon in my life these days. Um, but, you know, it was really, it was, it was good wisdom at the time. Um, and he was right. So you were there for 
um, you know, less than a couple of years before mm-hmm. going over to Washington Gas. What was it that you saw in the opportunity of Washington Gas where you recruited there and, and talk about that transition? Yeah. I just come out of grad school at that time. So I went to grad school in Virginia and liked the position originally was to uh, be involved in their voluntary renewable power sales. So I had no idea what a deregulated supplier was. Um, but I will say that I spent a long time at W. It was, the, you know, so Washington Gas is the parent, the utility, the deregulated division um, is the entity that I worked for. I had the opportunity to work with really fantastic people, um, really smart people in the industry. And that's really where I, you know, I spent seven years there in total, really learned the power business, really learned power markets, um, transmission capacity, ancillary services, hedging risk. Um, it just, it was, you know, everything from like what a wreck is and, uh, you know, compliance versus voluntary markets. And um, it was, um it was really helpful as far as like my career goes and, and where I am now. So Yeah, we've, we talked about this, but the advice that I've given folks most often, I unwittingly created a career podcast. I didn't intend to do that, but it turns out a lot of folks listen to the show because they feel like whether they've got a solid job or not, they need career advice. And so mm-hmm. we have these um, these parts of ourselves. You know who you mm-hmm. are and you know, like this is some, so a lot of folks are listening because they live vicariously through others and it gives them inspiration and hope. It also helps them course correct. I had Andy Tang on and he talked about deciding that he wanted to go do a four-year sort of tour of duty at PG&E, right? Because he knew that was going to give him the information required to really operate at a high level, at an executive level in the energy sector. Uh, So I've given that advice based on that interview and based on also an interview I did with Emily uh, Wangerman at LightSource VP who did the same. Or rather, that was her story. She didn't intentionally go to PG&E for that, I, I don't think. But she was there for, gosh, seven or eight years. Andy, for you, for like almost seven years. I am certain that you would also similarly advise folks who are young and want to understand the power markets and want to, like, I see people all the time. They're like, I'm going to go join this uh, this startup developer. I'm like, you have no idea the game they're playing. Go learn the game and you'll be three times more valuable when you come back to work for them. So the question I have is not, is that re- relevant and, and right? Because I know through talking to you that it is, but how long do you think it takes? There's like a minimum viable institutionalized time. What do you think that is? I mean, I don't think you really start learning a business at all until being there for two years. I mean, I think you have to at least put in two years and then you can, you know, you go deep. Um I think I needed all seven of those years because it's not, I mean, at the same time I was learning about natural gas markets and how the utility functioned and, um, you know, the learning went deep, but I think a minimum is two years, uh, you know, to sort of, it's like table stakes. Anything above that is where you start to, you know, really dig in. But it's, to your point, it's incredibly helpful. Um, I didn't seek out to do it, but it's foundational, I think, to, um, to where I am now. So I know a lot of folks are going to want to know more about SolarEat and your time at Sun Edison, but I think that, as I just enunciated, the time at seven years was really formative at Washington Gas and Electric. When you reflect back on the work you're doing now, what were some of the key initiatives you were a part of at Washington Gas and Electric that helped you really know your, your stuff when you moved, you know, Sun Edison recruited you for specifically for community solar. Like, I know that you were involved in growing um, 
growing the energy sales. You're involved in a lot of renewable energy stuff. You had just gotten your, um, I think, master's in renewable energy um, at James Madison. So unpack that a little bit before me. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've never actually really thought about this, but I, but I, um, I invite you down. <laughs> no, it's it's Walk actually it's us. like it's 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 interesting to pause and look back at your own history. Um, but you mentioned um, earlier the 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 wind projects, the early wind projects mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. This is before you know you were seeing solar everywhere. This is really back in time. Translating the installation of a wind farm to then the voluntary market. Obviously, you have compliance requirements for any electricity supplier to meet RPS right. requirements. Renewable but portfolio then, standards. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sorry, mm-hmm. our, okay. uh, renewable portfolio standards. Um, but also bringing that to the voluntary markets, people who would opt to pay more for 100% green electricity, um, particularly from a, a specific farm in West Virginia Obviously, you know, you're not getting electrons from that specific farm. But where, where that where that brought me was that I remember this so specifically. Community solar didn't even really exist at the time. Mm. And I had, I remember, I probably can find this document, a proposal for Washington Gas to take some of their existing solar farms and turn it into a subscription-based model, similar to the wind farms we did. Um, and I remember you know, just thinking through all this and mapping it out um, and then watching as some of the early policy evolved because we didn't have projects in Massachusetts. Were you involved in like the early projects that Kevin Schulte was working on, like doing community solar for wind? Kevin Schulte, but um, it was more like the wind projects were community energy primarily. Mm -hmm. Um, Jay Carlos, um, Harry Warren was the president of Washington Gas at the time. He's a great guy. Um, But uh yeah. Anyways, that was it was the translation of renewable energy not only to the compliance markets for renewable portfolio standards, but also to the voluntary market yeah. because it was meeting people's needs uh-huh. and wants yeah. was really interesting. Yeah. So well, and how you message that. I mean, you're taking a complex market function, you know, that involves physics and distilling it into something that's very simple for people to understand. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's really I mean, that's still something that is a challenge for you know the the Arcadias and perches and pivots of the world. How do mm-hmm. you message it? Mm-hmm. And that's their job is to, you know, I think what the thing that you uh, unlocked for a lot of folks just now that I don't think I've heard anybody else in any interview that we've done really enunciate. Perhaps Nathan Giovanelli because he was at IGS and he talks a lot about it. Um, but that's voluntary markets. People don't understand how these markets are structured. So voluntary market. What I heard you say is people who would opt to pay more for green electricity. Like that is in a nutshell. A voluntary market it is folks that are saying, I will pay for a different kind of electron. And now how we've evolved to say, in fact, solar is now so cost competitive that with community solar, you can actually save with a green yeah. electron. I mean, like my mind was like blown <laughs> when I, uh, when this uh, product started to evolve. So we've come a long way. So you were involved in some of the early carbon offset projects. Um, what do you think about the the likelihood of carbon markets in the United States as it stands right now? Honestly, Nico, I have not been following those markets. Mm. We had a great experience at Washington Gas because we um, we started um, a carbon offset program, but it was a, a true carbon offset program with, and we had, we were generating offsets with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. All of our offsets were certified. Um, 
that was another example of the 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 free markets essentially saying they are they're going to vote with their dollars yeah. to um, offset the impact of natural gas. I have not been tracking carbon markets. I will say this: it's been I'm I'm very much involved in the renewable markets because I know that it works and I know that it's cost competitive, and um, it's been a real pleasure to watch. For example, the state of Georgia advocating for more solar power, yeah. even though it was traditionally, you know, uh, it was traditionally associated with a Democratic base, mm-hmm. but now it just makes financial sense. Right. So I know people have been talking about carbon markets for a long time, but so you left um, you left WGL to go to a company that at the time was the mothership, right? <laughs> Sun Edison. What was the state of uh, their community solar initiative at the time that you joined and, and how did that, what were you brought in to do? Yeah. So, um, community solar that involved any sort of residential component at Sun Edison at the time was non-existent. Mm-hmm. So there was community solar from the sense of like a Minnesota project with a number of s- commercial off takers. Um, maybe five per project or something. Yeah, but just community solar. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. But they were calling it community solar. So I will say that when I joined SunEd, um, it was quite an uphill battle. Not in my team. I had a, you know, I was brought on for this purpose mm. was to bring more megawatts on the board right. and to work with the residential team in California at SunEd. And these two teams never really spoke. I remember talking to our friends at, at Terraform about. Mm the fact that you would have residential subscribers that are effectively fungible. Um, and I remember them telling me there's no way we could do this. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, we got it done, but yeah. And then of course, Sun has imploded. Um, and you like so many of the diaspora were inundated with job opportunities because it was in fact, the Harlem Globetrotters of the industry. <laughs> Meaning like everybody could play every position. The Sun Edison team was phenomenal and uh, with good reason. And um, you chose to go over to uh, Tom Matzi's Clean Choice. Why? I like Tom. I had a lot of respect for him in the industry. I think that's the first piece. Mm -hmm. Um, So I liked what uh, he had accomplished and I liked his vision for building out a solar team. Um, Even at Clean Choice, there were great great players, um, both some of them who had actually come from SunEd as well. Um, so, and they didn't have solar but, at the time. They were just a voluntary, um, yeah, they had, they had received a grant at the time from the department of energy to build out, oh gosh, this is going back in time to, to build out a platform, I believe for customer aggregation for solar. Uh-huh. Um, but no, there was no, I mean, there was community solar as a, as an industry was still fairly nascent. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the team came on board. It was, uh, Peter Coleman was there at the time and he was at Terraform. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, really it was Tom who got me on board at Clean Choice. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of folks in the solar industry look at Clean Choice through a different lens that, as I did than the way the power industry looks at Clean Choice, right? It was one of the original uh, competitive electric supply companies in the U.S. and the Northeast, certainly in deregulated markets. 
Um, you and I chatted about this briefly, but for the for folks who are unfamiliar, kind of peers in the industry for clean choice on that side of the business is IGS, which we've talked about with Nate Giovanelli, Constellation, WGL, where he used to work, Direct Energy, even um, Dominion. I would imagine that um, yet again, not not the, the Sun Edison experience is wholly different, but as a follow up to WGL, there were some core like like core memories uh, that serve for you now in leadership. Is there anything that you feel you bolted onto your toolkit from Clean Choice that's worth noting? Uh, so when I was at Sun Edison, um, part of my role was sort of bridging the the divide between the distributed generation team and the residential team mm. who historically never spoke to each other. Wow. Um, and that was, you know, going out to, to California and understanding how residential could help the DG team with actually subscribing customers for community solar. It was uh, pretty satisfying, actually. We had, we did some really interesting things uh, in, that, in that relationship. But then a clean choice, something similar because the DNA of clean choice was renewable electricity supply um, and really good people, really good shop. But solar, as you know, especially when you're doing community solar subscriptions and development and so forth, is very, very different. Um, so there was a lot of time spent, you know, from everything in educating the technology team on the tools we will need to sell subscriptions to consumers, um, to making sure we have the right regulatory support so that every subscription agreement meets certain requirements. Um, it, just a lot of a lot of uh, educating the the existing team on on you know how solar is different. Put me in the place and time where you first got that call from Gotham, and he said, "Hey, I know you're having fun over at Clean Choice, but yeah, I actually ran into him at RE Plus. Remember the one in um, Salt Lake City? Yeah, twenty nineteen. Yeah, the Ooh, event that at the was museum. so good. That was um, yeah, it was so good. What was that law firm? It was so good to yeah. get whiskey tasting. It was amazing. It was, but listen, just the fact you could like also walk around the museum, the have it all stunning. to yourself. So I literally ran into Gotham um, at that uh, event. I like actually literally stumbled on him. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't seen him in years. Um, and he didn't have the, he was about to announce a, a big business venture at the time. And, um, and we didn't talk about this explicitly, but it did open the door uh, to connect later on. And, and we started having lunch and just chatting about different ideas. And um, this was one of them. So, so as you began down this path and we talked about the process in the pandemic of you and Gotham raising your first 150 million fund, you have that rubber meets the road moment. You mentioned <laughs> a moment ago that you you generally need a couple of years in a business to truly understand it. And I've found that that's true for entrepreneurial ventures as well. What assumptions did you have to challenge in the marketplace or in the business plan in that first year or two of starting the company? Well, you know, our background collectively had been in solar, not necessarily in real estate. And this is very much a real estate play within the solar industry. Um, so I think a few things we did absolutely right would be we knew we were going to we knew we were going to make mistakes and as a result we wanted to make mistakes on a small level so we were very intentional about the first few few deals we made being small $300,000 for a piece of land you know $400,000 um and that was because we knew there would be errors um and there were but 
they were not meaningful because they were on a much smaller size. Just learning common assumptions that we, you know, you start to see different scenarios in the market as things go on, you know. So for example, we are all committed to helping finance leases on landfills. Um, but um and brownfields, things like that. But, you know, that's every brownfield is not created the same. And there's a different set of requirements when we do those types of transactions. Um, so it became hard to templatize that deal. It didn't become hard. It was like we had to go through it. Then we're like, okay, what did we learn? And what would we do differently? What would we do the same? And then here's our established set of rules. Um, and we did that. Now we have the playbook, but in the beginning, we didn't have a playbook as to what worked. So, you know, the other thing um, that we learned, and I think I touched upon this briefly, is when we launched, we had also thought, oh my gosh, there's so many landowners that have operational projects on their land. We got to go after these guys. Yeah, you know? and, they're going to want money. We, yeah, yeah, I mean, we did a direct mail campaigns, mm. call campaigns, and we did get a lot of those those deals in the door. But the return on energy and investment just was not there because to unless a landowner comes to us with a very specific financial need, um, it is not you know my job to convince them to do anything, and that's you know true for many things. So, to contextualize, you know, some folks listening might um, consider a big deal to be eighty or a hundred thousand dollars. You could textualize the average deal size of the ticket uh, for you of 300K yeah. is small. Yeah. So it's not so much. I think that's a great point. We're not buying um, leases or loans or land based on the appraised value. We're buying it based on a lease rate. So um, a deal of that size would be, for example, a project in rural South Carolina at $300 an acre or um, a very small project in New York. Um, so we still do do deals at that size, Nico, but now we also do deals that are $12 million, $15 million, right. you know? Yeah. Um, so for, for yeah. context, and maybe this is a little bit of inside baseball for folks who don't understand this at all. How does the payment stream look for a farmer that's getting uh, in South Carolina, a $300 an acre payment or lease? Like what is that? What does that payment strip look like? And what does, and I want to come back to something else that we talked about at the very beginning that I said I want to return to, uh, what does the availability of or importance of a purchase option uh, do for that product? Leases are structured either, you know, you're going to make monthly payments, quarterly payments, you know, biannual or annual payments. We're totally agnostic as to, you know, we, so when we step into any transaction, we don't touch the existing paperwork. We don't impact tax equity, debt. We don't touch the lease. We take everything that's already been baked and we just focus on the underlying real estate. The only thing that we do do is we run title on every transaction we're going to be doing, obviously, to make sure title is clean. But we are valuing. So for that landowner, that case you articulated in South Carolina, we're going to be looking at the entire revenue flow for the base term of the lease plus the extension terms. Because in our mind, if you have a project with an interconnection, we do not see the, the feasibility of someone saying, oh, no, we're just going to decommission right. it and not extract more. Yeah, typical lease, um, lease tenure is 20 years? 
Um, yeah, I'd say that that's 20 to 25. And then you can, you know, we model out to, you know, 35, 40 years, something like that. And why not 50? I mean, like a, a traditional coal plant is 50. I would say that the market in general right now is assuming 35 years for most equity and debt providers. Um, I think there's a case, of course, for longer, but you, you know, but I would also say that that's not really where things are, you know, once you start getting out into, you know, those tail years, there's not there's a lot of value, value right? in terms mm-hmm. of me, you know, b- increasing the purchase price. So. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. And also, I presume it would be the developer asking for a longer, um, an extension of that model rather than you. Like you're going to want, if you could do it, um, the way to optimize for your shareholders would be a 20 year <laughs> assumption, right? Yeah, I mean, we can do, I mean, there are plenty of scenarios where um, a developer might own land and they say, you know what, I need to, I need cash. I want to, I want to monetize my real estate, but I really want control in year 17. I don't want to sell my land and I want control in year 17. So we basically price it out as an easement for 17 years, give them upfront, you know, capital. Our easement is around that project area for 17 years. And then once that time period's up, it's right back in their control. And, um, you know, they're the fee simple owner. It's a vehicle for, um, credit investors to invest in real estate without actually having to own it as a unitary, like a singular owner, right? It's the same, it's the same as like a, what is it that was used? Like um, Terraform did this, right? Like there's, there are different ways to own power plants and the oil mm-hmm. companies do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's similar. I would say that it's some of our, when we were raising money through those um, original investors, some of them had expressed a desire for us to be structured as a real estate investment trust, even though that requirement is not necessarily one we have to adhere to right now with this new asset co, we will be doing that. And some of the things, like I'll give you an example of of how it can be restrictive sometimes. So if we encounter a lease that has, um, you know, the the escalator is based on CPI or... Um, and then with some kind of floor, you know, a REIT would not necessarily allow you to um, take a risk on CPI. Or, or for example, what would not be a readable asset is um, collecting lease revenue. That's a form of production uh, value from the plant. So let's say your lease is equivalent to 1% of production. So that's the kind of stuff we'll do as this part of this asset co but, you know, these are the scenarios that we had no idea we would be encountered with in the very beginning of our work. Um, we have solutions for all of them now, but originally it was, how do we solve for this? You know, how do we solve for this? Um, and, uh, you know, that's what we do. We solve problems. So, you know, I feel like there are a lot of folks who are listening and still not really clear on exactly sort of how you, how and when in the development cycle you enter into the process. One of the things you said at the very beginning was that um, you can pay forty uh, percent more of the purchase option. Developer collects the difference. Um, can you talk a bit about your ability to add premium value to developers, as well as when in the development cycle you can add that value and and ultimately why? Yeah, that's great. So we add value to developers' um, work in two ways. We either um, can pay more for a purchase option that they have in place, 
or we could take the purchase option price and solve for the lowest lease rate um, that we possibly could achieve. And as a result, they get a higher development fee when they're selling the asset. We don't come into a deal. Typically, we're brought in sometimes eight months, a year before a transaction would actually close. We can close on the land component, either buying the land itself, doing a land loan, or buying the easement um, when the project is at financial NTP. So essentially, I want to confirm that interconnection is in place, discretionary permits are in hand. There's a plan for offtake if it's obviously if it's in a community solar market. Um, if there is a PPA um, in markets like California or Arizona, I, I do want to know, you know, that there's revenue, contracted revenue. Um, but um, that's really when we, we step into a deal. Right. Basically, when, when you know there's contract revenue and, and it's at the place, it's at the point where um, funds can start flowing for the project. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's not actually no, because the project oftentimes, I mean, construction doesn't necessarily have to begin for another year. I mean, we have projects where we close at notice to proceed, but they're not actually going to start building the project for a, for a number of years to come, not years to come, excuse me, months to come. Um, but, you know, the interconnection and the discretionary permit piece is, is what we're really, those are two essential things that we kind of um, can't waive. Yeah. Well, what I meant was when funds start to flow, it's financial NTP. The banks sign off. Everybody is yeah. in agreement on the, stru- the structure of the deal. You guys mm-hmm. are involved in the deal, which is why you have to come in before it gets to financial NTP, right? We come in when the project's in construction or obviously if it's operational as well. Why can you pay more for a purchase option? I don't understand that. I, I, I'm trying to understand the, the unit economics of the business. Yeah, so if you were, you know, go back to the days where you were developing projects, if you're getting site control for a, a piece of land and you're going to get site control based on the appraised value, you know, you're going to tell a landowner that I'm going to pay you some option, you know, uh, some kind of option price every year until the project reaches this point. But when the project is at notice to proceed, I'm going to pay you this much money. Um, and that price is maybe slightly higher, but close to the appraised value of the underlying land. Of the land, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because there's nothing there. It really is just... And that's just, the purchase option. Yeah, the purchase option. Exactly. It's basically for, yeah, forward pricing, the, the value of what you will give them over time to pay for the land. So they're... The reason why I can pay more is because I'm buying it based on the lease revenue. Yeah. Right. Not on the appraised value at all. Mm. I, we don't even look at the appraised value of land when we're purchasing it. Right. And typically a developer will bake in the delta between the cost of the land and the value of the asset that they build on the land as a part of their upside. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and some developers actually say, you know what, um, we don't want to keep that delta. We don't need the cash. We want you, SolarEat, to, we had assumed $2,000 an acre for a lease rate. Can you beat that? And we come in and we say we can offer seventeen hundred dollars an acre. Therefore, when they're flipping, when they're selling the project to the long-term asset owner, they're going to get a higher debt fee. We have a great, um, a great business we work with as well. Uh, Eighty Makepeace. They're in Eastern Mass. They're the largest private landowner in Eastern Massachusetts, and they basically grow all the cranberries uh, oh, for Ocean Spray. What's it called? It's called AD Makepeace. Um, oh, yeah. and AD Makepeace Company. Yeah, they their their projects were um, developed by Borrego, um, yeah. and and 
they were some of the early de- adopters of solar in Massachusetts. I mean, they have smart one projects. Oh, wow. So we're going back in time. Um, and they have realized that, so we've done, I don't know, this would be the fourth portfolio we're working on with them, where they're basically freeing up the capital and the lease. They're never selling their land. So we're in that instance, we're buying easements over the project area. Um, and, uh, and they're using that capital to fund their business, to do new infrastructure projects. Um, so things that like that. That is like, it's just using the solar asset like a HELOC on a home. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So I had a... Uh, I had a boss back when I was building projects. He said, I love solar. Solar is real estate without the occupancy risk. <laughs> That's true. That is <laughs> but true. There, wasn't pro- there weren't products, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannon Armstrong was really early in creating these kinds yeah. of products. It was 2013, 2014. Yeah. There certainly wasn't a solar REIT. And then, so if I'm an investor in solar REIT, how do I make money? Well, you'd have to be, have been an investor in the first fund. So the second asset co is all, you know, Carball is the primary equity investor. But when we came out, um, when when all of those original investors took a bet on us, because that's really what it was, they invested money and we had no proof of concept, uh, you're going to be getting a dividend over time. So, um, and then obviously, you know, if there's ever an exit event, that'll, they, will, they will also be a part of that. But love, so far, we love about Reeds. It's like Masterworks. Yeah, Masterworks exactly. Like, oh, it's- and, and it's interesting because here we sit three years after we launched the business yeah. and we have achieved what we set out to achieve for fund one. I need which to, is, yeah, keep going, which was? No, I'm going to say full deployment of capital. Yeah. Um, so we've deployed, we, we've done what we said we would do with the hurdles we had established. So yeah. it's pretty, pretty cool. I love that. I'm going to have to introduce you to Mike uh, over at Energia. I think that, I mean, there's so many businesses that would benefit from what you guys totally. are offering. The cool thing is, you know, before when I used to work for different shops, obviously, um, you know, you're, you, what you're doing is kind of competitive in nature. Mm-hmm. What we do right now is applicable to everyone mm. in the space, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and and not just solar. Yeah. It's the joy of my job. I get to talk to everyone again, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, well, and, except for Hannon Armstrong. No, I talk to those guys too. I mean, <laughs> listen, I, uh, one thing that kind of, I always chuckle cause I do know people at, um, some competitive shops, but, I never, like I said, it's not a zero sum game. Plenty of business to go around. There's no need to get strange yeah. in front of competitors. So that's true. Yeah, I have to remind myself of that a lot. Um, even in the, yeah. you know, even in the marketing side of the industry, which is uh, ironically kind of where I find myself now. Like, I spent years. Uh, I built a residential solar installation company. I spent years selling solar panels and developing you know, megawatts of multi, you know, hundreds of megawatts of solar projects. And now I spend all day, every day, helping people like Solary tell their story better, right? And yeah, helping, yeah. just helping folks, like you said, the, one of the key problems we have in the industry right now is we don't know how to tell the homeowner, the consumer, the value of what we do. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. Residential is tough. I mean, y- you really have to, listen, there were, there were people at Clean Choice. Um, our chief marketing officer at the time had been the CMO for Verizon. He was so good, Nico. I mean, he, he, and this is what I keep trying to sell, uh, tell everyone who works for me is that consumers, it's two options, two very simple options, you know, provide anyone with more than two options, you lose them. Yeah. Um, and, and especially when you're talking about like rooftop loans and, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's challenging. I love you did that just now. Cause I was the very next segment as we sort of round third base to home is 
you know, what do you, what have you learned from the folks that you've worked alongside that yeah. have both like you've been able to distill into these kind of um, mm-hmm. truisms um, and that you pass along to others in your team, you know, distill it down to two options. Anything else that resonates or stands out for you? I mean, there's so much it's um, for me, it's always about connecting with people as individuals. So when I, when I go out into the market, if I'm at a conference or I'm meeting a new potential partner, I always want to listen. I want to hear what interests them. I want to hear what their problems are. And then, you know, equally important is if I don't think I can solve a problem that they have, I'm just going to say that. Um, and just being transparent, very transparent about what we can and can't do from the beginning. Um, I think when I first started doing origination work all those years ago, I never felt comfortable doing that. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think it's just very important to be that transparent in the beginning. Yeah. Is there anything that you've changed your mind on about the way that the business works or the way that you sort of once viewed it or anything where you had to make? Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll wait for Yeah. That. There's been a lot of hard choices. Um, I think that, um, you know, it takes just as much time for us to close on a deal that's $300,000 as a deal Mm -hmm. that's $3 million. And I think that collectively the heart of a couple of myself and a couple of people on the team is to continue to do a lot of the smaller deals. Um, But in reality, uh, while we can do some of those for like our really good partners, we need to really be focusing on, on transactions that are larger that will help us scale Mm -hmm. and achieve those goals. Um, Other things I think will be, really looking to do in the future is doing pre-NTP battery storage uh, projects. Um, and th- what's cool about Brett battery storage is we just hired a phenomenal woman um, who used to work for a large battery storage company in the, on the West coast. Um, typically those pieces of land are very small and they tend to be in urban areas and they tend to be extremely expensive. So more so I mean, equally, I would say, if not more so, these battery storage developers are really looking for a real estate solution because, you know, a a small piece of land in downtown Manhattan, that's a quarter acre, is going to cost quite a a bit of money. Um, And the landowner is not going to wait until notice to proceed to sell the property when you have other competing uses. So I get excited when I think about that because I think battery storage is such a critical part of of where we're going as far as like, you know, for, for different reasons, but yeah. So one of the key learnings for you in uh, that first job out of college from, by that mentor who recommended that you just chill out a minute was <laughs> um, to find other hobbies. Uh, what do you nerd out about when you're not thinking about how to help sales developers? Uh, Nico, I used to have way more hobbies um, <laughs> at that time. Can I tell you what I did after he told me that we hosted a refugee family from Somalia, six wow. people at our house yeah. and like integrated them into the community. I mean, this is bad. Gosh. This is a long time ago. Yeah. Now, you know, my time is really spent. I do quite a bit of travel for work, um, balancing that family, uh, kids. Um, I'm a huge outdoor person, you know, so that's, that's who I've always been. That's who I still yeah. am. Um, gardening and cooking. And obviously, uh, we do a lot of travel too for fun. So. You do, you do. I do, yeah. For those, oh, for yeah, those of I you forgot. Who you've accepted into your inner circle on Instagram, we know. <laughs> I know, we do. We know yeah. the level of travel that the Pagliarula clan gets into. <laughs> yeah. It's fun, though. It's fun. I get Good to live fun. vicariously through you and a few, of, 
Well, if you ever want recommendations, I'm here. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll take you up on that um, because all of us Mm -hmm. like to travel. What Mm -hmm. is the, um, what's the most interesting trip that you've taken in the last um, 18 plus months? Um, I loved taking the kids to go meet their extended family in Italy, in Puglia and, and like the Naples region. That was, that was the best because there was, I don't know if you saw that photo, but it was like four generations right there of, uh, of, of family and tons of kids. It was awesome. If folks are so inclined, and I'm sure they will, where are you most likely to be found? Where can they catch up with you? Where can they find me on the interwebs? Probably on LinkedIn, okay. honestly. Yeah. All right. Um, well, let's end, uh, sadly, we have to, with a bold prediction. If we look out to 2030, and we've really unlocked um, the, the scale that we believe the clean energy sector, in particular, um, battery mm-hmm. storage and community solar are capable of, what did we get right? What we will need to have gotten right is incorporating battery storage to allow more renewables to come online. So predicting where we need to sort of balance out those those peaks, putting the right incentives in place for battery storage. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's going to be a key piece here. And there's a lot of issues right now that the industry needs to be tackling. So um, that's, that's my, it's not very long from now. That's seven years. We had seven years. So <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I think that, the real sort of um, cultural goal line is 2050, but I say to everyone 2030, like if we don't turn yeah. the ship, um, yeah. there's a, there's a, there's a metaphorical iceberg waiting for us. So uh, I appreciate your time. Laura Pagliarulo is the president at SolarEat. Are you a co-founder? Are you considered a co-founder? I am. Yeah. I'm a founder too. Yeah. Found, co-founder and president at SolarEat. I'm so grateful that we got a chance to, to really dig deep. I think that you added a tremendous amount of knowledge to not just the Suncast knowledge base, but to those who have downloaded it now into their craniums and are going to use it to improve their own lives. Thanks, Nico. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I could keep talking, but appreciate it. You know, I echo Laura's sentiment. Developing solar projects is really tough. And over the years, it has gotten easier because prices have come down. The competition has increased. Competition on every level. And developers are constantly cash constrained. You know, Laura talked in the outset about how most developers are always seeking uh, to build to build a, a fund for their development company, and they have this non-ITC eligible asset in real estate that they can't monetize. Thankfully, companies like Solarit exist through the vision of Gotham and Laura to alleviate that concern. If you're a developer that is looking for that kind of leverage, I would encourage you to reach out to Laura. And I want to say thank you for making it all the way through this episode. I learned a lot about not only how these instruments are structured, but why they're so important to help us scale the expansion of our solar and battery energy storage assets. I hope that you have takeaways that you will share with me. My LinkedIn is connected right in the description of whatever platform it is that you are watching or listening on. Hopefully, you'll take a chance to go check out our YouTube channel. 
we have gone all in on being video first in 2023. So you get to see the big manly beard that I'm sporting right now. I haven't shaved it in, in, since RE+. So I'm having a lot of fun and I want to get feedback from you about how we can make this better for you. As, uh, as such, we have uh, updated, as it were, our listener survey. So today, the only ask that I have for you is go to mysuncast.com, click on the, the listener survey, give us your insight, input, and feedback on how we can make this show better for you. I really, really do want this to be something that serves you, your community, your colleagues and coworkers, and something that you feel is truly share-worthy and comment-worthy. Give us your insight so that we can make this better for you and our broader clean energy community, the, the solar warriors, as I call them, that are climate champions and, and clean energy tribe. I'm so grateful, not only that you've listened this far, but that our sponsors have helped support the show so that you can do so without having to pay anything other than your time and attention, which I believe are invaluable. So once again, thank you. You can thank them by going to check out what they have to offer at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. It's also how you could learn ways to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like yourself each and every week, twice a week. And coming up to three times a week, you're on Suncast. Please check out Resource Labs at resourcelabs.co if you'd like to check out some of the other curated network of thought leaders that we have put together in our podcast network. For now, remember you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.